Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. Say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook and share us. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, please pause what you're doing and give us a five-star rating and review. Follow us on Twitter at at clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. My name is Kirk Haberman. I'm a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, a priest. But today, we have a special guest. We would like to welcome special guest Jacob Hootman. Jacob is a lay reader at St. Lawrence Church in South Lake, Texas, and a postulant for ministry in the Diocese of Fort Worth in the ACNA, and is the Secretary of the Liturgy Task Force, which to me is a far more interesting job than its vaguely bureaucratic title may make it sound. It's like Secretary of State, right? Like that kind of secretary? Yeah, we'll go with that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Jacob, welcome. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. How are y'all? I'm great, and we we are happy to have you on. So Jacob, um, when you popped on here to the call, and I and I saw your shiny happy face staring at me from the screen, um, it's evident youth immediately struck me, <laughs> and I asked you how old you were, and uh, that number surprised me as well. And then I did some math and looked at when the liturgy task force began, and then I thought, holy smokes, how did you get on the liturgy task force? Jake, how did you get on the liturgy task force? So um, I am all of 20, and that, that surprises some people, and it surprises me too, I'll be frank. I did not expect to be doing this sort of work at 20, but um, when I was 16, I, had a, I got sick during spring break or summer break, I can't remember which, and I was at that point newly minted Christian, and I was on fire for the Lord, and very... Um, a, a term that I've heard is cage stagey, hmm. rattling, <laughs> yes. rattling. Oh, sure. Cages. And so I was in there. I'm in the Diocese of Fort Worth. We're very Anglo Catholic, and we. I'm not particularly Anglo Catholic, but that's the environment in which I was. I was formed, and everybody likes traditional language. At that time, the ACNA did not have a traditional language um, edition or volume of their proposed liturgies. The 2019 prayer book wasn't out yet. Um. So I sat down because I was sick and I had nothing else to do. And I went and typed basically the whole thing out. And I sent it off to Ben Jeffries, who was at the time serving as secretary of the liturgy task force. Um, He thought it was great, asked me to send my email on to Marcus Kaiser, who is now the chairman of the liturgy task force at the time. He was just a member. 
Um, and they asked me to, to join uh, specifically a subcommittee working on the traditional language edition. And that's, that's how I got my start. And a few years later, in fact, about last year, about this time, I was appointed as secretary of the, the whole task force, which has been a, a great honor for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I try to think of what I was doing at 16 and it wasn't <laughs> that. So that's amazing. So what is the liturgy task force? Um, it's a really vital thing in the ACNA because of uh, certain projects that have been going on. Could you say a little bit about that? Yes. So the liturgy task force is the group of people. It's, it's a committee task force sort of corporate entity established by the ACNA um, initially in 2009 as the prayer book and liturgy task force. I think our title is now the liturgy and common worship task force. Yes. Um, at the time, the idea was we were the group committed to writing the Book of Common Prayer, which would eventually become the Book of Common Prayer 2019. Um, obviously, we finished that effort in 2019. Since then, since about 2017, 2018, we've been working on the traditional language edition of the prayer book. Starting this year, we have been also working on a book of occasional offices um, for use in the province. So that'll be um, we, stuff like lessons and carols, stations of the cross. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And as well as some more pastoral things that might be helpful for people making visitations. So for example, some prayers, psalms, readings, that sort of thing that might be useful for prison ministry or um, an order for burial that you could use for someone who may have died unbaptized or otherwise um, not under the rights of the prayer book, so to speak. Um, a variety of extra rights that you might not need as often as you would need them in the, in the actual prayer book. Sure. Um, the liturgy task force also is responsible for working on or working with the music task force to produce service music and ultimately um, a hymnal for the ACNA or at least hymns for the ACNA. Yeah. Yeah. And I, as a church musician, am very excited to hear that as well. We continue yeah. to plug away with our 1982 hymnal while, while yearning for what comes next. Christopher. Yeah. And I, I just want to help simplify for, for many of our listeners who probably don't know what service music is. Um, there are certain um, parts of our service that, that we sing um, that might be familiar that, uh, that you might sing in your parish like the Kyrie, the song. Would, would you sing a couple of examples, Christopher? Uh, the Agnus Dei. <laughs> but also like these canticles that we've talked about in the past, like those, um, there are musical settings for those. And um, th those are things that uh, we've gone without. Like we've kind of had to find our own where uh, we're, we were accustomed to having all those in our hymnal. Yeah. We, uh, for, for years, COVID, COVID sadly kind of killed it. But we, well, Christopher, you know, we had a, an evening evensong service that we would do on Sunday, Sunday evenings. And um, we were just kind of um, creating our own settings <laughs> to the Magnificat mm -hmm. and uh, Song of Simeon because um, none existed for our, for our, new, our new translations of the Magnificat. So, uh, by the way, this is, this is I, don't, I don't know how many people will appreciate this, but I just need to say this to you, Jacob. Thank you for how similar those canticles are to 1662. Um, for example, the Magnificat is 
is almost so if you have the 1662 memorized and you run up you you you're praying to 2019 it's not jarring um and i love that i could still use with half holpen his servant israel but you know well well <laughs> he has helped his uh, servant israel. Hold, hold that for the traditional <laughs> <language>. <laughs> there, there we there we go yeah 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 that's all great thank you thank you jacob um why why the change of name to liturgy and common worship um i'm not sure that happened before before my time i'm spooked um, by that name because common worship is the name of like the so hideous it is, thing it, it doesn't it's little c little no, w okay. common worship not okay. the uh not the the I, I think the idea behind changing the name and this is speculation this this happened a few years before i joined the task force uh there was sort of a reorganization around 2015 2016 um and i joined early 2018 i think was when I, I first joined, maybe maybe late 2017, I'm not sure. But the change was to empower the task force to work on things other than just the prayer book. Okay. Things like a book of occasional offices or an altar book or a gospel book or anything, anything of that sort. And when you are not uh, the secretary of this very important uh, task force, you are a full-time student? Yes. You're a history major? I'm a history major at the University of North Texas. Fantastic. I'm a history teacher, so I fully endorse that, Jacob. Yes. Well, well done, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we have a very exciting gospel text um, coming up this Sunday. We've been plowing our way through Mark, and we're suddenly going to press press pause in Mark and go to Christopher, one of your favorite texts um, in all of John, correct? Yes, sir. So shall we take a look at the gospel? Let's. Today's gospel lesson comes from the gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 24 through 35. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what, was, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jacob, would you share um, with us some of the thoughts that you have on this gospel lesson? Well, this is very uh, Eucharistic in my mind, reading this. And I think that it, it highlights something that, that some, we, we often forget. A lot of times people get into debates and arguments over the mode of presence, speak, which is a fancy way of saying, how is Jesus present in this bread and in this wine? When really the important thing is that we receive Jesus. What are, what are the benefits? What are the effects of receiving Christ? Mm. And it, it lays it out here. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And while I'm sure that I would be hungry physically after eating only a small wafer and drinking a very small amount of wine, spiritually it feeds you. And the, this... The, the operation of, of the service of Holy Communion begins with receiving Christ not only in this bread, but first you receive him in his word, spoken through the prophets, spoken through the apostles, spoken then through him. We confess our faith in him, and we come before him, and he feeds us. And I think that this, following this passage um, in John, gives us a good model for our, our attitude as we go forward to receive to receive the sacrament that we can receive not as just simply a meal that we share but that we are really god's children coming to eat at at, at his feet so to speak Mm. absolutely christopher why are we suddenly in john Great question yeah (laughs) so uh in mark we just uh, over the past two weeks we saw jesus feed the 5,000 by multiplying the loaves and the fishes. And then we saw him walk on water. And so we're pressing pause and jumping over to John where those events just happened. And Jesus offers a discourse, a teaching on um, the multiplying of the loaves and fishes. And so uh, this is kind of a helpful capstone on, on that. Um, and uh, it's something we don't get in Mark. So, so we get that here. And uh we see this continual misunderstanding by the people here. I mean, this, this is unbelievable. Like all their questions are wrong. <laughs> like they come to them on the other side and they're like, when did you come here? Wrong question. They should be like, tell us about like this multiplying of loaves. And, like, what did we just witness? Um, and uh, Jesus points out that, that um, the signs that he is offering are, are not the, like they're, they're following him for the wrong reasons. They're following him for the reason of like, he filled their, their, their tummies with food. Um, and like I said, like this wasn't uh, a, an eschatological uh, feast, like a, a uh, the people ate and were satisfied. And this was a promise of the promised land. And, and it is like this sign of, uh, is it like this messianic sign that, that the people ate and were satisfied? Um, but then they, they, they go on asking questions in verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus is just like, like I, I can't prove it, but you know those people who spin signs? Like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like he was spinning a sign, like pointing at himself, like, <laughs> guys, I just told you, for on him that God the Father has set his seal. <clears throat> 
Um, he, he's teaching them like what it is that they ought to seek, which is not just a filling of one's stomach, but um, in fact, this eternal, um, this 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 uh, this food that endures to eternal life, um, which the Son of Man, this guy, will give to you, for on him the God uh, God the Father has set his seal. And then suddenly they're asking him about like works, like what are we supposed to do? And Jesus is like, blah, blah, blah. like. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And so they're like, okay. That's that's like the crescendo of several passages in John. Like John winds himself up in several different places and says like that you may believe on him and by doing so have life in his name. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. seems to be like a core message of John. Mm -hmm. And what's their response to him saying, "Uh, believe in me. Like this, this is like the work that you do. What's their response? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. No, no, no. They said, oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> this is a grand tradition, Jacob, where, um, where Christopher asks a rhetorical question and I'm actually looking ahead to something else. And I just yeah. have like a blank um, look on my face. Go they, ahead, said, they said, give us a sign. Mm-hmm. Like, give us a sign that we may see and believe you. Uh, keep in mind, Jesus has already done two signs. Now I, I get it. Maybe they weren't at the wedding at Cana, um, where Jesus, uh, uh, extended the feast as again this this eschatological sign this this sign of of things that are to come um but he just he just fed the five thousand, and they demand a sign um Mm. which is like no 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 kirk uh you'll understand this quote jesus says i'm not your trick monkey like i'm i'm not at your beck and call like i'm not like here to to respond to you um and it's interesting you know last week there were it our gospel text ended with this kind of interesting ominous i'm not sure what note you want to call it but like this like because they did not they, they doubted because they did not the understand about the loaves yeah, yeah. And, I, and i really think that that's why i mean uh well and several weeks ago he couldn't do um he couldn't do signs in his hometown because of the unbelief yeah. And, and maybe way. Jacob could, could give us some insight. I don't know if being on the liturgy task force, if you worked <laughs> on the lectionary, if you're, if you're like, well, that's why, you know, this is here. You're, is, you're is right. That... It's, it's, it's a procedural thing. And this is supposed to be a discourse on what has happened in the last few weeks. Okay. Yeah. And, and um, you know, we, we see that the disciples did not understand and did not believe. And here we have like kind of the crowds. And so Jesus is kind of pointing, pointing to this. Um, and then, so, uh, uh, you know, they, they, um, they talk about their fathers. Um, and then when they say he gave them bread from heaven to eat, um, Jesus is like, uh, uh-uh. it what, wasn't Moses. It was God, the father. Um, mm-hmm. and much like that bread that came down from heaven and settled on the ground for people to eat. Um, Jesus, the incarnate one, um, came down from heaven and was made a uh, flesh and took on flesh, um, and, uh, gives life to the world. And, um, I don't know if, if it's, it's hard to gauge intent. I don't know if their response in verse 34 is the right one, or if they just like, think this is something else that will satisfy their, their rumbling stomachs, but they say, sir, give us this bread always. Like this sounds pretty good, right? This, this, everything that you've described. Great. We would like some of that, please. Um, and then this, like, uh, and next week we're going to continue on in John chapter six. So we, we just get the beginning of this in verse 35. I am the bread of life. 
Um, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Can I ask a rhetorical question that I hope you guys can answer? What did Jesus teach about himself um, in John chapter four when he was talking to the Samaritan woman? I'm, I'm the living water. The living water, yeah. And she, she before she understood, says something similar. She's like, oh my yeah, gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. like I, I want that. And then he has the kind of gnomic I am statement. And then she's like, what? Similarly, just like the crowds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, Jesus gives them an exegesis of Psalm 78, 24, this, this Psalm where it says he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. So um, as Jacob pointed out, what's, what's kind of interesting here is, um, is, is the split, frankly, in, in Christianity between uh, those who see this as a Eucharistic text and those who <laughs> should see it as a Eucharistic <laughs> text. Um, and um, case in point is, is a brilliant uh, New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson. I was reading his commentary on this passage. Um, and it's funny, if you are determined to not see this as a Eucharistic text, you're not going to see it as a Eucharistic text, even as... Um, I mean, I, I don't think it could be more clear. And, and to give him credit, like some of the complaints they make is that in this text, Jesus says, uh, use the word flesh, where in the institution of, of the Last Supper, he uses the term body. But also we're talking different writers, right? Because this, in fact, is John's um, Last Supper text, right? Like, Not Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, I'm saying like this, this is John's. Which have the words of institution, yeah. Right. Um, where, uh, uh, you know, John focuses more on the, on the foot washing and other aspects on, um, in, in the last supper. So, um, so DA Carson, uh, it's interesting, um, because you have to do this if you're going to insist. Um, so Kirk, we've talked about how, uh, the, um, John, the evangelist, um, John, the divine, whatever you want to call him, um, John, the apostle, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, that, that he knew both Ignatius and Polycarp. Um, you know, we don't know for sure, but tradition passes this on. And, and, um, and uh, when, when tradition um, isn't easily uh, discarded because of, of, of other evidence, like we are, we are prone to, to go with tradition. And so uh, he actually quotes Ignatius, who says um, this about this text. Or I'm sorry, about just um, Holy Communion. He says, stand fast, brethren, in the faith of Jesus Christ and in his love and in his passion and in his resurrection. Do ye all come together in common and individually breaking one and the same bread, which is the medicine of immortality and the antidote which prevents us from dying? but a cleansing remedy driving away evil that we should live in God through Jesus Christ. And so he's like, well, um, if, if Ignatius was this massive like believer in a high view of communion and in, in, in a real presence and, and in this being a uh, Eucharistic text and he knew John, um, then there must have been a change early in the church because after all, Ignatius, uh, D.A. Carson uh, believes, is wrong on other things like monarchical bishops you know things like that um and so like you had like if you believe in essence to believe this is not a um there is evidence so early in the church of this being um, seen as a eucharistic text um that if you don't believe it's a eucharistic test you have to believe that 
in in the first years of the church, in the first decades of the church, there was a maybe not a 180, but like a 90 degree turn. Um, and, and a change in a distortion of doctrine um, that wasn't corrected until the 16th century. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I would like to just use this as, as a, uh, an opening to a discussion of, of um, um, John Wesley's uh, quadrilateral, uh, Wesley's quadrilateral. Um, and to just emphasize like, how we look at that and, and what we privilege because everyone privileges something there. And, and so West, uh, West, John Wesley said that there are, are four things um, that kind of influence doctrine. And that is, those things are. And, and he added, he added one to the traditional right. Anglican three-legged stool. So the three legs right. are. I'm, I'm listing, I'm listing right. Wesley's because yep. like many people privilege experience today. Right. Okay. So, but, so, but, but, so his ahead, four, the legs. Yeah. his four are scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. So Anglicans, we have the three. We have the first three, tr scripture, tradition, reason. And honestly, like I am so Anglican, I have a hard time even explaining what experience is. Like, can you and I have different experiences? Like, and, and how does like how does that influence what the, what the capital C church um, kind of understand, how we understand doctrine together? So, so for us, like um, we have these three things, scripture, tradition, and reason. Um, and uh, every tradition has its own like privileging. So like evangelicalism would experience um, scripture, well, I'm sorry, would privilege scripture above tradition and then would probably put like reason somewhere in the middle. But um, uh, every tradition privileges these four in different orders. And, and um, I think if, if you were to look at the way, I think a good, good exercise for each person who listens would be to like write down the way you think your tradition understands it and in, in ranking um, and kind of uh, think about that for a while. Um, gentlemen, um, what say you on, on these, uh, on the three-legged stool or the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral and how we ought to understand um, doctrine? Well, I, I would say what we have to remember with the three-legged stool Functionally, and the, the 39 articles affirm this, Anglicans have always affirmed this, scripture has to take the wheel. It has to take first place. It is the, the word of God in a way that tradition, reason, experience simply aren't. That being said, our, especially in relation to, to this passage, all four legs are really standing on, or at least the three legs, I can't speak really much to experience, uh, but the three legs are really, they're, they're pointing in the same direction. Reason would stand that when Jesus is talking about himself being bread and feeding people of himself, he's probably making, he's probably saying the exact same thing when he says it later in the institution, right? On, on Monday, Thursday. Stands to reason, why, yeah. Why yeah. would he use the same metaphor twice for two completely radically different things? Scripture references it, and he makes it clear over and over again, I am the bread of life. This is my body. Eat this, right? Um, and of course, our tradition has has universally affirmed the real presence, uh, no matter what what mode we say that is. Whether it's you know the more uh, Roman doctrine of transubstantiation, or, or if we're going to take the Lutheran approach, or, or whatever, the 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 idea of real presence is something universally affirmed by our tradition, um, even through the Reformation. John Calvin would have affirmed real presence. 
So I, I think that, that in this case, all three legs are pointing in the same direction, no matter which, which way you're coming from. Yeah. Um, and it's the, uh, it's interesting, Christopher, that you, you um, brought up the question of adding experience to that three-legged stool. At first, I was wondering why in, in the context of this text, but I think I understand now. So um, if God is truly present in Holy Communion, binding us to each other and to him and feeding us with all the spiritual benefits that were won at Calvary. Um, that is objectively true, whether we're having a great day in church or an awful day in true in church, mm -hmm. right? So it is, it is objectively true, not subjectively true. Um, Christ is there, whether, whether we're hissing at our children to shut up or, or whether we're having like a truly profound uh, moment um, at the, at the altar. Um, and, and so if, if, if Christ is true, because if Christ is there, because he promised to be, and because he said he is, then it's not reliant upon us having a mountaintop experience every time we come to church. Um, and so is that kind of what you were getting at, Christopher, the, um, the objectivity of the Eucharist? No. Okay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying like, we, we all, all right. privilege something. And, and what I'm saying yeah. is, is, um. Well, then I will make that point. I will make that point. Okay, then. yeah. No, that's, that's a good <laughs> point to make. We can trust these words are true. Um, well, and, 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 and these that, are that's... a happy promise for us. Um, Absolutely. Whether we're feeling it or not. And I actually have a really mystical observation to make here. And this could be wrong, so it's fine. I'm just a layman. I'm just an organ grinder. But um, if we felt like the last 16 months have seen an outpouring of evil and misery on this earth, you know what hasn't happened a lot in these last 16 months? Been a lot less holy communion <laughs> there's been a lot less of the objective presence of of jesus in our churches and in our communities um and and i have to think that matters right so so if we look at what why why we are to feed on him and what jesus promises we see in the synoptic gospels in matthew mark and luke um, um he says uh um, for, um uh, drinky of this cup uh, for the forgiveness of sins, right? This is the application. And if we link it back to uh, uh, Passover, right? It is the application of the benefits of the cross to us, right? To the lintels and doorposts of our heart, right? Just as the lamb's blood spared the Hebrews from the angel of death, um, that the angel of death might pass over, um, so too does the lamb who, which taketh away the sin of the world, right? So too are we spared um, of the curse of Adam and Eve by his blood being applied to the lintels and doorposts of our heart, right? It is, it is um, objectively true. And uh, uh, yeah, so I just make that mystical point. Um, this is also something really interesting since you're, 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 we're all scratching our head at um, our evangelical brethren kind of having um, maybe a blinkers when they read this passage. Um, the Reformation, Christopher, tell me if I'm getting this word right, that um, taught uh, something called the perspicuity of scripture. Is that the right word? Right, that the plain meaning of scripture is, is the meaning which both the author and the Holy Spirit intends. Is that correct? Well, but also um, the, the, it doesn't need to be mediated right, by the church. Right, 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 right. So what else could be the plain meaning of this text, right? Sure, yeah. 
um, you, you have to temporarily drop the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture. Sure. Correct? Not to read this yeah. as Eucharistic text. J- Jacob, does that seem right? Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> you have to momentarily set that aside. Yeah. And, and really what I wanted to do is, is to help help each of us understand our own tradition, where we came from and, and why we believe what we believe. So, um, so uh, our Roman uh, Catholic friends, um, they, they do privilege tradition over scripture. And th- like, this is why um, during the, the, the Lutheran Reformation, as, as Luther argued um, scripture versus canon law, he, he lost in the courtroom of the church. And that was frustrating to him. Luther who loved the church and wanted to reform the church. And, um, uh, while in Geneva, our, our reformed friends, um, uh, they felt like the church was hopelessly corrupt and uh, decided to get rid of it all and build from scripture up. So, so, so um, while the Anglican Reformation was a much more conservative reformation, one, one that eliminated anything that was in, in conflict with the clear words of scripture, um, so, so like when you put tradition up against scripture, scripture wins, right? In, in, in the Anglican tradition. And, um, wouldn't, wouldn't you so, say we generally shy away from pitting the two against each other? Well, like absolutely. Are, yeah. But like when you read the 39 articles, they were simply correcting right. things that seemed inconsistent with yeah. scripture. Um, and this is a big clash between us and our reformed brothers and sisters in Christ, because um, if all you're doing is building from scripture up, like a lot of this is going to seem right. superfluous. Like you're going to look at Ignatius and you're going to have to say, well, he must have changed because we don't see this in scripture rather than saying, well, God was doing something through his church. As we talked about Kirk in the past, having a high view of the church, Holy Spirit is having a high view of the church yeah well i mean i i almost oh man if we have like presbyterians who listen they probably think i really have it out for them but sometimes i feel like uh, um the swiss reformation and calvin um sometimes privileged a reason over over scripture so like if you read say john 20 like this is i i I just i can't believe that calvin's commentary says this right that um that that Jesus couldn't have just appeared in the upper room because that's not, you know, how humans work. Right. Um, but, but if you read a text and you say, well, that, that didn't happen because it can't happen, which is sometimes right. kind of a, a reformed reading of these things. Kirk, how did he explain his disappearance then? In, like in he John, seemed to like, when he yeah. like, disappears from the crowd. No, yeah. no, 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 no. The risen Christ. Like, oh, didn't he yeah, disappear yeah. from that room? Yeah, I forget. Well, he climbed through a window, and then what? He threw a drop to smoke. Yeah, bomb? I forget like, what Calvin says about that. He verse. seems to kind of yeah. appear and disappear when he wants. Yeah. Like, didn't he disappear um, from from uh, dinner at Emmaus? Yeah, Jacob, this is like a stumbling block for me with, <laughs> with Calvin. Is that oh, yeah. he has several 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 times in his commentaries where he says that it it it, it doesn't actually mean that because that couldn't happen. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> well, Calvin is. I like Calvin more than I like what Calvin writes, um, namely because I think he, he represents a lot of people, myself included, I think sometimes we, we get a little too legalistic in our own minds. And it's it's good to see that that, that there's hope for, for, for those of us who maybe elevate law over gospel occasionally. Oh, at yeah. Le- at yeah. least in our own way, right? Calvin was a lawyer and a total nerd to the bone and he was insufferable to be around i am sure but it's it's good to know that those sorts of people have have a place in the church yeah can we can we uh, before we move on uh, because i'm excited to talk about our next topic 
can, can we spend a brief moment um, looking at the, uh, or just marveling at the, uh, the the pairing of the Old Testament text as well? Um, because the, the text appointed um, is the, the text from Exodus that Jesus refers to here, um, Exodus 16, mm-hmm. um, in which uh, God rains bread down from heaven on the Hebrews in the wilderness after the Exodus, after they've left Egypt. Um, and, uh, and that bread, <laughs> it's interesting, um, that bread at the very end of, of this passage uh, in Exodus 16 um, goes, goes like this. Um, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Uh, I wonder if any of you, um, I, I grew up Methodist. Jacob, I wonder if at any point in your time, in, in your life, you've wondered, why Holy Communion? Why this thing? Um, just like the Hebrews said in the wilderness, what is it? <laughs> What's this thing? Why is God feeding us this way? It, it's it's a good question. I think that that I think it's a little more. It's not as obvious in in our modern age. You know, if I'm hungry, I'll go out and the the big restaurant around here is Whataburger. That's the big fast food restaurant. <laughs> I'm hungry. I'm going to go get a burger and some fries and a drink. Right. Yeah. It wasn't always like that. And the importance of food as the center of uh, not just life, but sort of society, right? Society exists, even from the secular standpoint, to sustain people. Food is sort of the center of that, of our physical sustenance. So just as we are physically sustained by food, so also we ought to be spiritually sustained by food. God loves analogies. He loves using signs to express something that he is doing spiritually. And in this way, I think I think it makes a lot more sense when you get from that angle that even though yes I'm eating a little tiny you know wafer and drinking a little bit of wine it represents in a way obviously there's a real presence but there is still a, a sort of representative action going on that that bread and that wine represent my spiritual feeding mm. that's, that's and and God could yes um, I think probably um, just kind of declare us fed and filled up with the benefits of the cross. Um, But it's interesting that that baptism and Holy Communion, that we have water and bread and wine, that that, that physically the benefits of his shed blood need to be physically applied to us as well. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that interesting? In that that way, it's almost akin to that. So obviously each sacrament has a bunch of different parts, but one part of each sacrament is the memorial, right? we have to remember what it is. If God God can simply, he is completely sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. If he wanted to apply all the benefits of the cross to us all at once, he could do that. He has elected to do it in such a way though, that forces us to remember why, like what those benefits of the cross are, what they do for us, why they're important. Food is important physically. Therefore, this spiritual food is important. It is important for me to stay physically clean. Therefore, it is important for me to spiritually wash myself in the waters of baptism, right? Hmm. I'd say that's, I, I think that that's sort of the, 
the parallel going going absolutely there. well well said christopher any final yeah. thoughts before we move on to our theology just as as we look back um at uh god's people in the wilderness i mean think about um who jesus is talking to and their identity as this people set apart um and think about how how frequently um you know jacob talked about this this sense of uh there's a a memorial aspect to many things, but think about how frequently Jesus pointed back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he talked about just, you know, just as um, they, they gazed at the, the snake on a pole, like right. the son of man will be lifted up. Think about like, you know, so he points to like bread coming down from heaven. Like Jesus was like, I came down from heaven. Like there, there's so, there's so much, so many powerful illustrations looking back at God's work in the past. Like, look, look what God has done. Look what he is doing. Look what the promises are to come. And, and so that's uh, just a, I, I think a, a, uh, I, I know Christians who have little use for the old Testament, right. but, but um uh, boy, we, we wouldn't know what we're what we're encountering as as we again and again and again um, see, uh, like I said last week, that that the Apostle Paul said Jesus was the rock. Um, as uh, so many times we we look back at at the way that God provided in that time, how God provided in Christ's time, and and promises to provide today. And so so yeah, we we ought to read the whole of Scripture. Yeah. I would love a renewal movement. Um, in, in American Christianity of reading the gospel in the Old Testament mm-hmm. in this way. And I think, I think our, Jacob, shout out to you all. Um, our, uh, our prayer book in the lectionary does a great job of highlighting the gospel in the Old Testament in, in those pairings. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. It's, it's lovely. It really, it really pulls out the gospel themes oftentimes in the Old Testament lessons. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Oops. Gentlemen. Let's move on to theology. theology segment um, we have on uh, as a special guest here Jacob uh, who is on the liturgy and common worship tax task force which is very exciting and liturgy is a word that uh, we often use in Anglicanism and we take for granted um, and yet it's um, a very rich but often very I think probably very foreign word for many people so we want to talk about liturgy for our theology section today uh, Jacob what is liturgy? Well, liturgy, the, the Greek word means, depending on who you ask, either work of the people or public work. In, in either case, it is a work, in, in fact, probably both definitions are, are true to some degree. So it is the work done by the people, a work offered up to God, and a work done on behalf of the people. 
a public work, so to speak, that God gives back down for us. Liturgy in, that's sort of the formal definition. Liturgy in common parlance is the service you use on a Sunday or on any day when it comes to Christian worship. It is the ordered worship that St. Paul talks about, um, usually consisting of psalms, prayers, readings from scripture, not necessarily in that order. But that those are the sort of basic building blocks. Liturgy is a, it doesn't even have to be formally structured. I would say that what most evangelical churches do on a Sunday is still to some degree liturgy. They have a, a structure that they tend to follow with, you know, they'll have two or three praise songs and then they'll have somebody speak and another two or three praise songs and a prayer and then a sermon, right? Even if that's so, not a liturgy even though it's not written down or they don't call it a prayer book, they kind of in their gut get it. Yeah. Or feel weird when it's suddenly different. It, absolutely. On one Sunday. Okay. Absolutely. So, so what that, is the value of that? Why 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 do we instinctively reach for those kind of patterns? Well, because they form. So the, those patterns structure our Christian life, and they form Christians. When I was a baby Christian, which was not that long ago, I I converted when I was fourteen, fourteen or fifteen. Um. And I had never been in a church before that. I had been in a church once for like, I think it was like six and they had like a Santa Claus thing going on. I'm not <laughs> sure, but um, I'd never really been in a church before. I'd never been to ch a church service. But as I went to the liturgy every Sunday, sometimes more than that, if I could, I didn't have a car, but I, I, I fell in love. And, you know, I, this, I was saying as we, when we got on the call, um, I was on fire for the Lord and I still am. And I've got, I, had, I was almost in my cage stagey sort of mode. Um, I wanted to go as often as I could. I was in love with it. It was awesome. Um, it was, it was the, the sort of start of my Christian journey. But as you go, certain words, phrases start to form in your mind, certain patterns. And so it becomes natural to the point where going to church on a Sunday is no longer a choice. It's just what you do on Sunday, right? like in your own mind, not, not sort of a societal pressure, but that's simply the habit you've gotten into. Liturgy forms us in that way. It exposes us to scripture on a regular basis. And most of all, it serves as a delivery or a manner of delivery for the sacraments for us to, uh, to, to receive them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the 2019 book of common prayer, mm -hmm. which is, um, uh, the result of a lot of hard work that your task force did. Um, we, in our parish, we had been receiving some of the, the um, I don't know, what were they called? Experimental texts, yes. right? So you had the been releasing texts piecemeal, um, and I was encouraged by all of them. Uh, but when it finally came out in, in, in one prayer book, I was shocked. It was far better than it had any business um, <laughs> being. Um, I, th I think a lot of things in life, um, whether it's sequels of movies, <laughs> the further you get away from the original or the more revisions, the further you get away from the original authors, it often gets gets worse. <laughs> this is the, the great, the, the funny uh, comedy from the 90s, Multiplicity. You have Michael Keaton where you have the copy of the copy of the copy. And every time there's like, a, you get further away from the original, it gets worse. And that is not what has happened. Um, so I wonder how, what was your goal? Um, it seems like you retained 
um, what was worth retaining of the 79 prayer book. And, and it had some worthy goals. It, it added to a lot of blind spots in the 28. And yet you went back to kind of the molten core of the 28 and 62. Now that question, you can go kind of wherever you want with that. But why is it so good? <laughs> well, I, I would say that to, to point to why it seems, uh, I've heard some people call it the, uh, uh, like a neo-retro prayer book <laughs> yeah. almost in a way. What it does functionally is it takes the, the content of the 1928, more especially the 1662 prayer book, and it takes the, that content, that theology, the doctrine contained therein, and it puts it into a shape that is familiar to those of us who in North America have been using either the 1979 prayer book or the Canadian Book of Alternative Services for the past 50 years, basically. For better or worse, the majority of us do are not familiar with the 1928 prayer book. We're not familiar with the classical prayer book tradition. My parish has always used the 1979. Most parishes have, at least in, in my area and in most of the established dioceses. There, there are plenty of people who use the 1928, and they're welcome to adopt the 2019. Uh, we, we don't intend to, our, our goal isn't to make anybody change their prayer book. If you like your prayer book, you can keep it. Um, <laughs> but with our goal here was to correct the 1979 in such a way that its errors, we could keep what was good about it, like you said, and keep what was familiar about it. The shape of the liturgy is familiar. The, the sort of idea of the sacramental life that it delivers is familiar, but the, the theology and doctrine are certainly that of the classical prayer books. Jacob, why, should, why prayer books at all? Why should we have a prayer book? There are there are many many great um, God fearing gospel loving traditions that that don't have anything like that. Absolutely. Well, I I would posit that really they do. Um, every every church has a liturgy of some kind, um, whether they want to admit it or not. The difference is with the prayer book and liturgical traditions in general is that it is something that we acknowledge and something that we embrace. Having a prayer book structures our church life and puts us all on the same page. We've all sat down and agreed as a church that we ought to read the same scripture on Sunday, pray the same Psalms as the church fathers before. This is what Christians did. And even before Christians, this is what the the Jewish people did Mm. in most of Israel when the, the, uh, synagogues began popping up all over all over Israel in Roman Judea. Forgive me. Um, as and of, of course after that, after the the destruction of the temple in seventy AD, sixty nine AD, um, synagogues became the main form of Jewish worship. And similarly, Christians follow the same thing. Our temple, Christ, has gone up into heaven, so we had to sort of create these own our our own version of synagogues. And this was simply the pattern of Christian worship used by Christians since the time of Christ. This is the way Jesus would have worshipped. If I were to take morning prayer from the 2019 prayer book, translate it into ancient Aramaic, and get a time-traveling device and go back to ancient Judea, it, it wouldn't be what they use in the synagogue, but it certainly would have, wouldn't have been foreign to, to Christ or to the apostles. Um, and to be frank, it's because it works. It forms believers, it, and it has always formed believers. There's a reason the three biggest denominations on the planet are Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Anglicanism. 
and it's it's not for for want of liturgy. I'm not going to say liturgy is what caused that. Obviously, God is what's converting people to 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 follow His own way. But forming believers, informing believers, this liturgy is key. It's mm. it's it's almost necessary for for strengthening us. Yeah. Um, so what would you say to um, like a, a, a Baptist friend um, that that uh, blanches a little bit at even like the Apostles' Creed and considers that um, maybe rote <laughs> Roman Catholic nonsense? Okay. What would we I say mean, to them? I, I think that there is some strength in not always having to find the words to say. Uh, yes. That's, that's the easiest way to put it. I mean, I am absolutely dreadful at extemporaneous prayer. I'm terrible at it. I have tried for years and years and years, and I said, I can't do it. It's, I, I sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. There's too many ums. The key thing with a, a lot of people talking about, you know, rote liturgy or rote prayers that, that aren't really from the heart and perhaps there's some truth to that. Sometimes there are prayers that I say sometimes, and it's I'm I'm not always on the same page. But that's the beauty of it. I don't have to be. I can get there. I, I it's one step closer for me. And if it'll form my heart and form my belief in such a way that I can I can confess the things it says, and confess to God the faith which was handed down by the apostles. Would would you say? I, this is a leading question because I definitely believe this. Would you say that um, morning prayer, evening prayer, um, these patterns of of written prayers actually teach you how to pray extemporaneously? Yes, absolutely. Um, when I when you pray extemporaneously, a lot of people, and you'll see this even even with people who are not from a liturgical tradition, they will name God. They will describe an attribute about God. They will ask something of God. We'll end with a doxology. That's a call out. That's a call out. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what it is. I mean, for better or worse, you're praying liturgically. It's exactly the same thing. So, uh, I mean, that, that's, that's what I would think. It, it helps strengthen that tradition in you. And more than just using the, the prayer book, the prayer book is 95% scripture, just rearranged for worship. So the, the main thing, the most important thing about praying out of the perfect, in my opinion, is using the Psalms. Regular recitation of the Psalms will immerse you in scripture. It'll form you yeah. in a way so that you will pray. The Psalms were Christ's prayer book. I mean, it, they were the apostles' prayer books. They were the, the prayer books. Of, I mean, David wrote them as a prayer book. So immersing yourself not only in the, what some might think of as the tradition, Really, it's scripture. Immersing yourself in that rearranged scripture is is something that will help build up your ability to pray on your own. Absolutely. Um, I think of uh, the Magnificat. So you have this probably teenage girl, um, and she has this miraculous event happen, right? <laughs> um, and where does she find the words to give thanks to God? And when you look at the Magnificat, it's... Um, bits of uh, the Old Testament and, and psalmody that's stitched together in this spontaneous um, yelp of, of praise. But it's not for quite spontaneous because as you 
read it or pray it or say it or sing it, you're like, oh, that's from that psalm. And that sounds like the song of Anna. And um, it's just lovely. And that's, um, that's how you begin to pray well when you're immersed in, in psalmody. Um, and when you have, I, I would say for us, all those collects to draw on, mm -hmm. I have bits of those collects um, that are just kind of floating through my mind constantly. Um, the joke in my church is, I, I say every Sunday, this is my favorite collect, and everyone kind of chuckles. Um, but, but when you've been around them for 10 or 15 years, and you come back to this one again, and you say, ah, oh, yes, and that one too lodges in your brain, and then you have that as a reservoir to draw upon um, in times of prayer. So uh, my, wife, my, my wife and I both grew up um, in kind of this kind of um, smiling Methodism, this kind of bland liberal Protestantism. And she has latched on to an evening prayer. Um, it's a prayer I think our prayer book attributes to St. Augustine, though its origins may be murky. Keep watch, dear Lord, with mm -hmm. those who work or watch or weep this night. Um, and that has just gripped her. And she, she, she painted kind of a, a, a painting of it um, with kind of it um, very artistically written and then a painting in the background. And it's, our young, it's in our youngest daughter's room. And it's become our youngest daughter's favorite prayer. And, um, and because of that, because I, I hear her praying that with my daughter every night, I have bits of that in my head constantly when I'm kind of feeling anxious or under assault or whatever. And so it's just kind of a, a constant resource, wouldn't you say, that, that you can draw upon throughout your day? Absolutely. Yeah. Christopher, I have been dominating uh, this conversation. I know you have a question or two here. No, I've, I've uh, really been enjoying it. So, but I mean, okay, I can needle you a little bit, Kirk. Um, <laughs> okay. Kirk, uh, one of the things you love about Anglicanism is that we are a tradition of common prayer, that we are yes. united by common yep. prayer. And yet you also love traditional language. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so Jacob can, tell, can share with us a little bit about um, the development of traditional language liturgies and Kirk can um, try to square that circle of like how he can like uh, value both things. <laughs> so um, the traditional language edition of the 2019 prayer book is on its way. We've been working on it since 2018. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's been a little bit slow going. We've had to wait on the 2019 to finish, obviously, and then see the reception from that, go back and forth between ourselves, the bishops, um, but it, it's, it's on its way. Hopefully we're going to get a, a draft of it to the College of Bishops for approval in January of next year. So January, 2022. The traditional language edition renders the text of the 2019 prayer book in the Elizabethan sort of idiom that is familiar to anybody who's used the 1928, if you've used write one from the 1979 prayer book, um, anything like that. It's a lot, a lot of people sort of make the distinction between it and contemporary language with the contemporary language being easier to use or um, more, more, you know, more popular, I suppose. The, the demand for the traditional language edition, um, forgive me, is very strong, especially with a number of young people in our province. Um, obviously, I'm not, I'm 20. I'm, I'm not even, a, I, I can't go buy a beer if I want to. But 
this is something that I am very interested in, in. And there's a lot of young people that are very interested in the traditional language project. Um, earlier this year, the two of the folks over at InterVarsity Press released the 1662 International Edition, similarly a traditional language prog uh, uh, product, which was designed to sort of North Americanize the traditional English Book of Common Prayer. And that's been wildly popular, especially among younger Christians. Um, having that sort of elevated language is something that is helpful. A lot of times, you know, pe people sort of think of J Jesus is our friend and Jesus is our companion, but he's also our Lord. And it's helpful for a lot of people to speak to him or to think of him in, in this sort of elevated way. Um, we, we even acknowledge this with, within the contemporary text. Plenty of people still use the traditional Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. That's what I was taught even before I was a Christian, right? That's the one people know. And, and I'll, I'll interject here that, that saying Psalm 23 in, in non-King uh, James Version, so like even though we're Coverdale people, like there's something about the King James Version that like sticks in my brain and I love it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's that idea that there, there's, it, it really is tradition and there's no, I love and use the contemporary edition. I, I just got recently engaged and I'm getting married in the next year and we, thank you. And we're, we're intending to use the contemporary language marriage, right? I mean, there, there's, there's nothing wrong with, with either one. Both are, both of them are completely acceptable. Both of them are awesome. I'd say they were both well done. Not to pat myself on the back. I, I'd say they're both well done. They're both <laughs> well, well received. I agree. Um, but that's what I would say, I think, yeah. about traditional language. So Christopher's stirring the pot a little bit, though. Um, is, the, our, is the notion of common prayer, that is, that, that, that we as, as a communion are, 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 are reading the same texts and praying together across time and space, um, is that notion violated by um, this, uh, this traditional language? no more than it would be violated by someone saying mass in Spanish versus saying it in English, I think. It's the same text. It's in a different idiom. The language is different. The content is the same. If I were to put, I, in fact, I could, I have, I have it over here on my computer. We, I have a whole ton because whenever we were doing this work, we had comparative charts as we call them. So two column charts on one side, you get the traditional language, one side, you get the contemporary. Yeah. And the difference is the thy and thou with maybe some more expansive flowery type language right. as some yeah. might describe Devices it. Devices and desires and things exactly. that change. Yeah, yeah. But functional offenders. It's the same prayer book. It's the same liturgy and it's the same words. It's asking the same petitions of God. We're reading the same scripture from the same Bible and the same Psalms that we're singing, you know, same canticles. It's not a huge difference. Difference in common prayer comes when you're using a different system. So, for example, sure. in England, you have a number of people who use the Roman Missal, um, right. Church of England priests who have don't use the prayer book. Most people over there don't. They use common worship, which in itself has a number of options. Like eight. But a number of people, especially <laughs> Anglo-Catholics, just use the Roman Missal, um, which when you, when you go that far and you, you sort of abandon the the boundaries of your church, right? That's when I think you might have a little bit of an issue with common prayer. The important thing is that 
at the end of the day, we're under authority. The church has the authority to decide what its worship will be. Um, I had opinions that I would have much preferred to be included in the traditional language edition that I got outvoted on. <laughs> That's okay. I'm going to continue to use what the church has set apart to say, this is what we're using for worship. I say, yes, of course. Um, because at the end of the day, liturgy can be changed. Liturgy can be altered. What is important is living to some degree in, in, in discipline with yourself, right? Not being changed by every wind of doctrine, I guess would be the best way to put it. Yeah, um, I have a question for you about the traditional language, uh, because I remember, and and I guess I should interject here also to say, if you are listening to this and uh, you are not Anglican, uh, I, I just want to thank you. And um, I want to <laughs> ask you for some feedback, because this, I'm sure, is, is inside baseball. So I'm, I'm just curious, like, what your thoughts are in this discussion, because we're getting a little bit in the weeds. But but I, I want to ask, um, because I do think, that um, because the because liturgy is formative, um, things that are misunderstood um, hopefully are didactic because people ask about them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because language changes, and we've talked about this, Kirk, in the past. The one uh, oh, we talked about miserable offenders. Um, um, is it's not that we we're just like miserable as in like uh, sad, but but that we are in need of of. Um, of, Miserere, uh, have mercy. Yes, yeah. in need of We're mercy. We're in need yeah. of mercy. Um, and so I know in the, as we've developed the 29th, as we, and I, that's a very collective thing. It's not, I was not involved at all in developing the 2019 prayer book, but like over many, many years, uh, liturgies were released and used and uh, criticism, not criticism, I guess critiques, uh, feedback was sought. Um, yes. but I, I remember some of the early prayers of confession, um, that, uh, something was included that has been removed this, the sense that our sins are more than we can bear. And I remember, uh, someone, um, uh, remarking that like, are they really like, do we, each of us, um, and, and he didn't understand that, like, what this means is like to, to, to confess that our sins are more than we could bear is to say that there's that Jesus came and did for us, what we could never do for ourselves. It's not that we are just so overcome by like, grief at our sin um that so i'm just curious like that was there it was removed and maybe this was even before your time is 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 that in the traditional language um so that the the burden of our sins is more than we can bear i think is what you're referencing and yeah. that there is a version of that in the the traditional language edition okay. um i forget the exact phraseology it's in the confession in the anglican standard text um, um the burden of them is intolerable that's what it is. Intolerable. Okay. So, yeah. and them, of course, refers to sin in a clause before that. I'm not sure what, but yes, yeah. th th that is included. And that's, that's one of the more important parts. I think that you touched on, this has been a collective process. The, the liturgy task force doesn't, we, we can't arbitrarily make decisions. I mean, it's, it's not like we're, it's not like I'm some sort of appointed liturgy czar with <laughs> wide ranging powers to, to do just about anything. I can send emails. That's really about it. Um, the, the important thing is that we produce these things and we send them out to the province and we want feedback. We want people to say, this works, this doesn't. Um, that's how we get people on the task force. There was a, a man who sent in a, who sent walls and walls of emails because he went through and read all the traditional language liturgies 
Um, and he found all sorts of problems in them and things that he commended us on. So we said, listen, do you want to, do you want to come help us out? I mean, and he joined the task force, met him John Martin. Um, but I think that, that it comes down to here, you can see there is quite a bit of sort of, we're, we're trying to get popular, popular um, participation, that's the word. In, in the liturgy process. This isn't just something that's, that's being imposed, which is what happened um, with the 1979 prayer book to some degree. Mm. Um, we're trying to make this as interactive and as inclusive as possible. Yeah. And I think you guys have done a great job and I wanna commend you for that and, uh, and thank you for spending some time um, talking with us. Um, we're gonna end in prayer in just a moment, but, but we've been talking about rather serious matters so I have a fun final speed round for you, Jacob. Okay. Okay. Final speed round. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Ooh, good. Marvel or DC? Marvel. Oh. Luther or Calvin? Luther. France or Germany? Germany. <laughs> uh, what about it? The food? The music? My last name. Oh, okay. There you go. Love it. But also favorite, the food. favorite gospel? Favorite gospel? John. That is, that is that is always a go-to favorite Pauline epistle. Um, Romans. Deuteronomy or Leviticus. Deuteronomy. Favorite wisdom book. Uh, Ecclesiastes. Ooh, good call. Soccer or football. Um, football. Good Texas call. man. Soccer or baseball or football. Football again. I'm from Texas. Indian food or Chinese food? Chinese food. Chinese food or Mexican food? Mexican food. Yeah, okay. Hemingway or Fitzgerald? Um, Hemingway. American lit or British lit? Brit lit. Well done on the speed round, Jacob. <laughs> Christopher, shall we end in prayer? Let's. The Lord be with you. And with, with your, your spirit. spirit, let us pray. Almighty and merciful God, it is only by your grace that your faithful people offer you true and laudable service. Grant that we may run without stumbling to obtain your heavenly promises through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. O God and Father of all, whom the whole heavens adore, let the whole earth also worship you. All nations obey you. All tongues confess and bless you. And men, women, and children everywhere love you and serve you in peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next Jacob, week, Kirk. Jacob, thank you. Thank you. For you. Coming. Thank you. Christopher, next week.